to Cinema Duel, where usually myself and my friend John would talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. But that's not happening today, obviously, because I'm the one hosting. John is off taking the month of November to recoup, to celebrate life in its finest. Uh, so instead, I have one of our previous guests with us, our good friend, Eric Heider, to do a theme with us today. Eric, how you doing today, sir? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. It's nice to be back. It's been years. <laughs> it's been years. It's weird yeah, to think that we've been since doing the Marx this for Brothers, years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's an interesting kind of um, parallel to what we're doing today. Uh, you and I kind of being the elder statesmen of our group, we tend to uh, love and focus a lot on slightly older movies, which is why you were a perfect fit for the Marx Brothers episode that we did with John. Uh, we're kind of taking a similar track today. Uh, and this may be the start, if I may quote something that we're going to talk about in our recommendations, this may be the start of a beautiful friendship of future podcast episodes, because we are going to be diving into the wonderful world of Swashbuck uh today um and this was something eric you and i have been talking about kind of doing for a while now so i'm gonna kick it to you and just ask you you know why swashbucklers what's your tie to it and uh what brought you to kind of love what we're gonna be talking about today well as a kid i loved adventure stories i was you know loved reading about robin hood and king arthur and and Zorro and whoever else, you know, I, I got into Raphael Sabatini's books. I read, you know, Captain Blood and Scaramouche and The Black Tulip and all those kind of things. And it seems strange to me, like, also, uh, let me let me rephrase that. It doesn't seem strange. I was five when Star Wars came out. And Star Wars, well, not a swashbuckler though some may think it is. I wouldn't call it one. It is an adventure movie for kids. And it was for our generation. We grew up with that original Star Star Wars trilogy. And they're big adventure movies. And it makes sense to go from Luke Skywalker to Robin Hood, to go from, you know, Han Solo to uh, Zorro. Like, they're... Like kind of roguish rapscallion kind of characters. And so I think that I was drawn to the, to those first as stories. And then when I started to see that there were movies and my parents were, were big film fans and we used to watch lots of old movies, you know, used to have a couple of good UHF channels. And so I would watch whatever old movies were on. And oftentimes you would get, you know, one on a Saturday would be like an adventure movie. So it would be, you know, the aforementioned Robin Hood or Captain Blood or the Seahawk or whatever. And then that just kind of stayed with me. I didn't see really a difference between watching those and watching Kung Fu Action Theater on Saturday afternoons or watching Creature Double Feature and seeing like Godzilla and the Universal Horror movies and all of that stuff was just like a mash of like boys adventure stories. And as I got older and started to understand more the difference between the genres, I was drawn to swashbucklers because by definition, they're almost always fighting for more than themselves. Yeah. And all of the swashbuckler stories, they're, they're, 
either they're personally wronged or there is a societal wrong that they are fighting to change or return to a better place. You know, in Robin Hood, he's fighting for Richard against his evil brother. And, you know, in Zorro, he's fighting for the, the payons and the simple peasants that are being, you know, taken advantage of by the evil commandant kind of guy. Like, all of those things, that's, those are the stories that I believed in. They're, you know, they might as well be communist fairy tales in a lot of ways. It's like up with the, the little guy, you know, always root for the underdog and always fight for what is right, regardless of what is legal or <laughs> what is expected. And so, yeah, it, I, it, I've been drawn to those, you know, not saying that I like base my life on Robin Hood, but I think I learned a very valuable lesson about fighting for the rights of the little guy. Yeah. Uh, authority can easily be abused and it is up to people to take a stand and inspire others to just come with them. There is something about, I, I, I think you hit the nail on, on the head. I think it's two things about coming to these at a certain age. You and I are only a year apart. Um, so Star Wars was that big kind of galvanizing event for so many people to kind of take that track. But for me, I think very similar to you, I, I, I grew up with a, a father who loved these movies. So I, I, as much as I grew up with Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, I grew up with Robin Hood and I grew up with Zorro and the Scarlet Pimpernel and, and, and all these, these different, um, people who espoused a morality that as I was younger, I, I was absorbing and it was not only to do what is right, but to do what is right, even in the face of, what is the law, right? I mean, Robin Hood is a perfect example of that. And no surprise, we're going to be talking about Robin Hood today, but, um, there is something for a young kid. And that's the thing about as I got older, why the swashbuckler almost more than any genre kind of stuck with me because it imprinted on me so heavily as a younger kid that here is an example. Here is a, model to look at, um, they're doing the right thing. They're not doing the right thing because they're being told it's the right thing or because the, the government or the powers that be are saying this is the right thing. They're doing the right thing because they, they, they see and they are championing those that can't help themselves. And that's always been a powerful motivator. Um, for heroism on, on film. And it's always been a powerful, um, message for me to watch as a young kid growing up. So I, I, I love that we, 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 we tend to sort of see the same things in that and that it was a byproduct of, um, growing up in that day and age where it was a lot easier to see stuff like that. I, I think it's something that on, for better or or for worse, people who are maybe are a little bit younger than us, I don't know that they have the same type of touchstones. Um, I I'd be hard pressed. Maybe it's Indiana Jones. Maybe it's it's maybe it is just Star Wars because when the prequels came, there was a whole new thing of heroes for kids to look up to. But um, 
I, I think there was just so much more, uh, back then to look at. That was such a huge theme and it was such a, it, it was at a time where the cultural touchstones of the thirties and the forties were still reverberating in the seventies and the eighties. And I don't know that for kids growing up in the nineties, that that reverberation was as loud or as sonorous as it was back then. Well, cable changed the UHF channel, right? Like we grew up with right. like, if they could get something for cheap, they showed it. Like, so that old black and white movies that nobody, you know, cared about anymore in the 70s and 80s, they were cheap to buy and cheap to program. So that made a huge difference. Um, I also think that you can't underestimate the power of Looney Tunes. <laughs> and you have lots of references to the Scarlet Pimpernel. Rob, there's multiple Robin Hood, co- you know, with Daffy and and yeah, uh, Bugs, they both three have musketeers, Robin Hood right? Three musketeers. Uh, I don't remember if there's a Zorro one. There's got to be a Zorro one, but they were referencing the pop culture. And when you see Daffy as Daffy and and Porky as uh, Robin Hood and Friar Tuck, <laughs> that will stay with you forever. And the way that it makes fun of particular sequences in the movie is also really funny. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so it's like it was this cultural melange of all this stuff. And we have to remember that those were being shown on Saturday morning. The Looney Tunes repeats were, you know, in a best of our show, you know, the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner hour. And so we were also exposed in that that way. We don't we don't have a monoculture anymore. And by having so many choices and so much driven by the individual, a lot of the shared culture, for good and for bad, because I think a lot of it was really terrible, but we don't have that shared culture, so there isn't the generational let me pass on this love of these movies and this thing. Like you you're not exposed to them, you're not you know, you don't have four channels and three UHF channels. And that's what you have to choose from. You have everything on your phone and it's great to have that access. But I think that also changes the way what swashbucklers are. And we live in such a strange society where we need swashbucklers. I mean, more than ever, we live in a, such a uh, plutocracy that, you know, we, we hold up as heroes. These guys are just ripping us off. And it's so, it's such a shame that we don't have the will to tell those kind of stories of the little guy getting, getting a hero that to stand up for them and then feeling part of a movement that could change something. Yeah. If there was ever a time to bring back a Don Diego Vega or to bring back a Robin of Loxley, right? To, to start to retell those stories. We've, we've done it in, 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 in certain like factions and, and, and not to keep going on. We will eventually get to the two films we're going to talk about, which yeah, we, no surprise. We're going to be talking about Zorro and Robin Hood, but, um, you know, those ideals permeate and they, 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 they find hold in other genres. I mean, the, the one thing that I can think of right off the top of my head would be, um, 
as uneven as they may be, but the Marvel Universe and particularly Captain America, right? The whole point of at least from the comics and what somewhat was translated to, to screen in Civil War was the act of the Sokovia uh, Accords and Captain America acting on, you know, going against what the government was laying down and saying, Hey, this is what, th- this isn't right. This, this is what I need to do. I'm going to do that in the face of the quasi tyranny that that's being laid down in the interests of a massive Hollywood machine. It, 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 again, it's a lukewarm interpretation, um, but you still find its tenets here and there throughout the universe. But the, the thing that I cherish um, about these films in, in particular and about some more that we'll talk about. Like I said, this is, this is hopefully the first of, of uh, a number of different episodes that we'll be bringing to you periodically about the genre. But there is something about the pure distillation of an, an oppressor um, that is stronger in every way than the hero. And yet the hero continues to fight. They continue, he continues to stand up against overwhelming odds, against the odds of a government and a police force and a garrison. Um, th- these are not the tales of superhuman, superhuman beings. These are the tales of the little guy who kind of gets up and fights for what's right. And they do it with a lot of swords. <laughs> yeah. Swords and the moral right. You yeah, know, like they they know they're they they are making the correct stand, uh, but they're armed with little more than that. Um, you know, Robin has got a bow, and that's a good thing, as we'll talk about because swords. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we need to talk about that. So, why, without any further ado, yeah. why don't we jump into the first of our two films, nineteen thirty eight, The Adventures of Robin Hood. So we are kicking things off with um, 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood, starring Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, Basil Rathbone, Claude Rains, um, directed by Michael Curtiz, co-directed by William Keeley, as we just figured out he was the original director and uh, was replaced by Curtiz um, at some point during the filming. This also marks a couple of firsts. This was uh, really the start of Halby Wallace, um, super producer for Warner Brothers, the guy who really turned Warner Brothers into the massive monster studio that it was. Uh, this was also Warner Brothers' first kind of use of uh, three-strip Technicolor. This is a color film. It was not supposed to be. In fact, uh, through most of its pre-production, this was going to be a black and white film, but they wanted to start testing it out, and this was the perfect film to do so. It also holds the honor. Um, we will be talking about my favorite film of all time when we talk about recommendations, but uh, after my never-will-be-moved-permanent-placed first favorite film of all time, it is a very small circle of films that navigate for second favorite film of all time, um, and it's probably like three <laughs> um, uh, and this is one of the three. Uh, so for purposes of this conversation, this is my second favorite film of all time. Uh, what is it about? Uh, it is about the adventures of Robin Hood. I mean, hopefully everyone knows kind of the history of Robin Hood. Uh, it kind of starts in media res. Richard the Lionheart has gone to fight the Crusades. In his place is his brother, the rancid but lovely, and we will talk a lot about uh, Diabolical Claude Rains. 
um, who is aided by the Sheriff of Nottingham uh, and Sir Guy of Gisborne, uh, played by Basil Rathbone. Uh, one of the best uh, in the business when it comes to playing a nefarious villain. And also, very rarely a hero. My wife is like, I've seen this guy play a nasty guy all the time. Is he ever a good guy? Yes. If you've ever seen the 1940s uh, Sherlock Holmes movies where he's Sherlock Holmes, he might be my favorite iteration of Sherlock Holmes. But here he plays the notorious guy of Gisborne, um, who is helping Prince John get to the throne. But unfortunately, in their way is the notorious outlaw Robin of Loxley and his band of merry men uh, who fight uh, to save the people of England, to save the the people of Nottingham and Sherwood Forest, uh, to to undo that which was done and to bring Richard the Lionheart back into power. It's a classic story. I don't need to get much more into details. Where I want to start, Eric, with you, I'll, I'll, I'll throw this to you first. Um, one of the things that I loved about this movie, I mean, there's so much to love, and we'll talk about the performances and some of the other stuff, but one of the things that I loved is the openness of the film. We're talking about a 1938 film that doesn't, for the most part, feel studio-bound. I mean, there are huge pieces where you are obviously in a studio lot, um, but one of the things that we'll contrast when we talk about our next film is how open this feels. There's so many sections that take place outside that make use of the sky and that make use of shadows. Even when it's a small outdoor setting and there's obviously matte paintings behind you, there's something about the scope of this that just feels larger than life. So talk to me a little bit about watching this film for you. Um, how did this film feel for you in terms of scope and size, uh, considering it's a 1938 Hollywood production? Uh, well, I think you, you nail a lot of it there. It, it takes advantage of the second unit unit shots in a way that most films of that time just didn't where they send like a whole bunch of extras just go out here and uh pretend that you're robin hood and you're there's people like chasing you know tons of horse chases and stuff through the forest there's uh, there's some shots in that like i think my favorite outdoor shots even though they do take good advantage of big open space my favorites are the ones where like it's a solitary rider and he rides through the shadow and then through water in the yeah. light and it sh just blasts out like uh, it's gorgeous. And I think they also realized that I, I think it may be a technical thing with the, to do the Technicolor, the three, three strip Technicolor, you need an incredible amount of light. And if you're making a film in California, in the summertime, you have the option to use yeah. the outdoors in a way that it wouldn't, it, it, it may not read the same way in, in black and white, but take advantage of, of letting the sun saturate the film and, and bring out that color. It makes it cheaper because you, you're, you're not running 10,000 watts to get the color inside. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it uses sc scope and scale. It feels like a big movie, even though it wasn't initially intended to be. I mean, yeah. it, it is the, at the time was the most expensive film they'd ever made. And it looks it. I mean, it, oh, it's here. all on the screen. To your point, like since they've gotten the use of daylight and they're using that bright summer sun, one of the things I loved about this is it may make no sense if you think about it realistically, but 
everyone is dressed like a freaking rainbow and it's gorgeous. I have never seen so many colors. I mean, Robin Hood and his merry men should be camouflaging into the Sherwood forest, but at, at, at no point do they care at all about blending into their surroundings. And it's glorious. It, it's, it is such an ignition of color. Um, they, they went all out for this film and it really shows in, in those outdoor scenes. There's another part in, in, in particular, we're talking about kind of famous, favorite outdoor moments. And I have to give a shout out to, um, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, who was the um, composer for the film, there is the section where Sir Guy Gisbin and Lady Marion are traveling, and they're going to get ambushed. And Kurt, I'm going to assume it's Curtis because it's such a brilliant sh- sequence. He intercuts between them riding and Robin and his men laying the ambush in place, and Korngold's music switches it almost becomes hitchcockian like there is this kind of inner spice and 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 the 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 switching between sequences becomes more and more frantic and it gets faster and faster and Korngold's score just keeps going back and forth and all of this is done outside and it's just it's it's gorgeous it's one of the best sequences of the film and it really doesn't even qualify as a set piece but because of the music because of the cutting because of the editing back and forth between the two sequences until they finally collide to the ambush it's one of the most exciting sequences in the film yeah it's more exciting than the actual set piece that that it's building yeah because once the merry men start falling out of trees like coconuts (laughs) It's it's too comedic for the weight of the scene. This scene is meant to be like one of the big serious moments. Like, oh my God, Robin Hood and his men have captured Sir Guy of Gisborne and Maid Marian and the Sheriff of Nottingham. Like, dun, dun, dun. And you can't help but go, man, where'd they get all those vines? <laughs> Man, why are these guys like literally the idea of jumping like from a 40 foot branch onto horseback to tackle a guy? None of this is going to end up well. And it, it it's really funny because it ends up being a scene that people make fun of for the next 70 years. I mean, not just in, in Men in Tights, which, you know, is a send up basically of this film meets the, the Kevin Costner one, but like the court jester makes fun of it. Yeah. Um, the, it's amazing how much like the court jester is one of my favorite films. This is one of my favorite films, but I don't remember having watched them, uh, as closely in time as I have. I've, I've seen both of them in the last couple of weeks how much the court jester is just like, uh, we're just going to make fun of that shot and that scene and that sequence and that one and that even to like the backhands that, uh, yeah. that, he, that the sheriff gets. Um, and, and on the sheriff, I know we'll talk about performances later, but you said he gets help from the sheriff of Nottingham. Well, <laughs> and Claude reigns at no point. We should sh- put that th- in quotes. <laughs> Yes. Yes. I would, I would, if only I could reach him. I mean, that's one of the best parts of the film. His, his cowardice is hilarious. It's, and, and it's, it's just, they've, the, one of the things they also, I think, is pretty standard for swashbucklers is you have adventure, like swords, 
a just cause, a romance, and comedic <clears throat> sidekicks or moments to keep it all from becoming melodrama. There is that that's there's multiple characters in this movie that are just there to keep you from from it, you know, from corn gold making you go, you know, like (laughs) he doesn't do that because when you would expect that that ratcheting melodrama moment, there's comedy to cut it. And um, yeah, uh, but like that whole sequence and then they after the capture, they go back to the. They're the great oak and have a big party. And that that whole sequence is like the one time you think that they're merry men and in every way you want to construe that word. It is so much a showcase for Technicolor. Yeah. From the clothing to the food to the like glistening pig that's roasting, like everything is very clear. Even the like people that have been burned out of their homes, all of them are wearing way too many colors, way too much variation to to make each one an individual. It's yeah. it's just about Technicolor. And it's about Maid Marian in that in that sequence, that iridescent dress. Oh, it's, it's, it's stunning. That, that sequence does so many things for me. Um, and, and, and maybe it's a good segue to start to talk about some of the performances and stuff. Cause one of the things I love about that sequence is it, it does two things. It points out that I have not seen a man relish eating on screen like that, like, like that's Brad Pitt levels of loving to eat on screen, Errol Flynn. <laughs> he, he takes every opportunity to bite into mutton and to turkey and to roast fowl, um, every chance he gets. And it's a delight. But what that sequence also does, and it starts to set up one of the things I love about this, this movie about how it spares no punches in a way that when we talk about our second film is completely different. It's interesting that the earlier film is much more. Um, ambitious in its violence, in its cause, and in the, in, in the effects of what happens when this tyranny comes down. Um, and it, it, even though it is a, it is the set piece that kind of for every other iteration of Robin Hood, including the Disney animated version, right? They, they have the, here's the merry men being merry in the middle of Sherwood Forest at the Great Oak. It stops for a second to do a character beat. And that character beat is as Marion, you know, continues to belittle Robin Hood. Robin takes her aside and says, this is what I'm fighting for and brings her into the other side of the party where they're caring for all the people who have been hurt, who have been torn tortured, who have been burned out of their homes. And he's very direct and saying like, oh, you know, these people have had their eyes, you know, gouged out. These people have been whipped. They've been burned. They've had everything taken away from them. They've had children killed. This is what I'm fighting for. I'm, I don't care about, and he makes that great display of like, oh, you're probably going to keep the gold for yourself. And he stands up and goes, hey, what do you say we split the gold? And everyone just screams, this is for King Richard. This is for the king. This is for the people. Um, it's such a great moment. And it's it, it's just another example of a film that is not afraid to show that there are consequences for what is going on. One of the things that I found fascinating about this film, I watched, I, I, I've seen both of the films we're talking about 
This film I've seen way too many times than I, I, I can count. But the other film, I've probably seen a good handful of times. And one of the things that struck me watching them in such close proximity is, without getting away into what the other film is, that other film is very careful not to kill anybody on screen, with one exception. Every time that person, in one point, runs a sword right through the person, you see that person moaning and groaning on the floor forever after. You see no blood in that other movie, with with one wonderful exception that we'll talk about, because I, I love the way 1940s Hollywood did blood uh, using animation. In Robin Hood, in the first scene where much kills the deer and gets beaten. You see blood all over his face. And it's such a great, again, with that three-strip technicolor, everything stands out. Um, In the first action sequence, which is, we should talk about in a couple of minutes, because it's probably the greatest, even though it's not technically an entrance, the greatest entrance of a hero ever on camera. um, Robin Hood kills like six people. Yeah. This is not a film that is afraid to show violence, that is afraid to show blood, that is afraid to really speak to the consequences of what is happening around around you. Whereas when we talk about some of the later films, and maybe it makes a little bit more sense as things get a little bit more conservative going into the 40s and then the war and then the 50s, um, that reluctance to show that violence more directly gets a little bit more restrained. I love that about Robin Hood, that it's not afraid in its own 1938 way to show that. Yeah, I mean, I think Munch is the only one that bleeds on camera, but everybody else, like, their people just get an arrow in the chest and they're done. And and nobody pretends that they're alive. You know, somebody gets hit in the head with a mace, they fall, and they're just, like, stacked on a pile of other dead people. (laughs) It's, It's not cartoonish, but it is, I mean, it clearly shows it in a way that, you know, Zorro really doesn't. And we've already said we're going to be talking about Zorro. Yeah. So, uh, but it doesn't, but at the same time, it doesn't show. Nobody has like a great death scene. There's nobody like cradled in someone's arms or, you know, it it doesn't go for the melodrama. It just shows people die. Just boop. There it is. And uh, that is really interesting. And I would say Flynn has two entrances here that are great. Because the first time you see him, he's with his buddy, Will Scarlet, and they j- tandem jump as if they were holding hands, jump over, well, they're on horses, and they, the horses jump over this yes. log. And then it immediately cuts to a headshot of Errol Flynn giving you that grin, that devilish little, like, hey, baby. Hey. Like, it's, he, it's, he has it's everything but the teeth glint. You yeah. Know? And then... The entrance that that Chris alludes to or alluded to earlier or mentioned, the dude walks into the feast of Prince John at the time. He's has not said at that point that he is, you know, going to become the king. He is just the prince acting as regent for King Richard, his brother. He walks into this feast after people have been talking about him. He's the only thing everybody's talking about. You know, oh, he had the audacity to to kill a deer in the king's wood, you know. And he walked, the doors open and you see him swinging this deer carcass on his shoulders, knocking guards left and right to get inside the building. And then he just walks in like... He's got his like a, his laundry over his shoulder or something, and he just drops the deer, and it's so 
like you can, it is such a physical thing. Yeah. And, and it's one of those, you, you don't hear it really. Like they don't like nowadays it would have this big wet boom, you know, it would be kind of a wet thud and it would boom through the, you know, through the subs. No, it just kind of goes, boom, and it just falls like a dead thing right in front of Claude Rains, who looks at it like, how interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, like, at that moment, look, I'm all in for Errol Flynn. Uh, this sequence is one of my favorite sequences in movie history. But part of the reason why it's one of my favorite movie, one of my favorite sequences is goddamn Claude Rains. Claude Rains... Who is there anyone who is a better, just kind of arrogant dick than Claude Rains? Well, no. First off, no. Uh, secondly, he is the bad guy, but you don't hate him. You don't. In the, like, you hate Sir Guy of Gisborne because, you know, that Rathbone is playing him as completely irredeemable like there he has he shows nothing at all whereas prince john is a guy that believes his own hype and he believes that he is smarter than everybody and he can make this work but it's this sort of arrogant ah, i'm better than you but it's all right I'll still, you know, I can still let you can still sit at my table. He's, Robin, you rascal! <laughs> yeah, give him a seat. No, no, no! Don't, don't, don't kill him. Let's have a conversation here. I'm enjoying this. You know, like he's very, he is deliciously wicked, and he has a because it's Technicolor. They have dyed his hair a color of red. Oh my goodness! <laughs> that should not exist. They've given him a haircut that should not exist. It's like the, it's like, what if Prince Valiant had a curl at the bottom? It's a, just a terrible haircut. <laughs> and yet you put him in the right clothes and you, and he just is someone that people would suck up to. Like it's Claude Rains. Of course he's, He's going to have lick spittles and lackeys, um, which sounds like the best version of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I wrote in my notes, I just wrote Claude Rains Rains. Yeah. And uh, you can't take your eyes off him. When he is on the screen, he is all that is on the screen. And they do, they very carefully do not do a lot of shots where you see Rains and Errol Flynn. Both of their faces trading barbs. It is cut between because you want to see the sort of deliciously egotistical evil guy and the, you know, big hearted, but kind of a jerk character on the other end. Like Robin of Loxley is not everybody's idea of a great guy, but. Robin Hood is. And when yeah. he kind of becomes Robin Hood, like in the beginning, he's kind of arrogant. He's kind of a, a prick, but he's not once he, once he becomes an outlaw, like his demeanor changes and he does seem like somebody that like, Oh yeah, people could follow him. Well, that's so 
right to what you said earlier about the first entrance and the way that I'm just going to assume I'm just going to assume Curtis at, 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 at this point when he and Will jump over and then the, the camera kind of goes to his face in that perfect close up. Curtis does the same thing in this exchange when they're having the exchange. And Robin accuses him of being a traitor. He's, he's kind of eating food and he's sitting at, at that table. And the movie takes this beautiful moment where he gets serious and he turns from the jokey Robin to I am fucking Robin Hood. And when he turns, it's on a dime and the camera knows. So when he, he's kind of leaning back in his chair and he sits forward and he says, I will give you a death for a death. I will fight with every let. And as he starts to go through this speech, the camera just goes shunk and it just gets some dead center on that. Like, I mean, Errol Flynn's got one of the most perfect visages of all time, but it just cradles that face. And it's like, this guy means business and the camera knows it and it lets you know it. And then from that point forward, it launches into, you know, one of the first massive action set pieces of, of the film. But they, they, they play that really well. They, they play him being a bit of a jerk an arrogant, you know, prick at times. But when it comes time to, talk about what he stands for and what he's there to do both Flynn's performance and Curtis's direction kind of work to emphasize that really really well and then to, in parallel when I mean we're going to jump around chronologically in the movie because we want to talk about sequences that tie together so near the end of the movie he you know the merry men capture what they believe are a bunch of monks who seem kind of rich and they bring them back and they're going to like take their money and go through the whole thing. And then the news comes that Richard is in England and he's been seen in Sherwood forest. And immediately Flynn drops that same, that same yeah. seriousness comes right in and quick will, you've got to check all the, you know, all the ends and you, you know, take this note to this person and in months you're going to run here and you're going to, and he's setting out like dead serious. These are all the things we must do. And then Richard's, and then Richard, the Lionheart is like, don't worry. He's in the best hands in England. And he shows who he is and they all get down on their <laughs> knees and all the Skittle Knights take off their brown robes and they've got their red and their blue and their yellow. That's and their one of the moments robes. where I, I teared up watching it. Today. Yeah. Oh, cause, <laughs> and it's when he stands there and they do that, it is the way, it is the reaction of, of the leads. It's yep. the reaction of Flynn. It's the reaction of Alan Hale. The reaction of Eugene Pallet is Fry, Tuck, Friar Tuck. They make you believe that this guy who you have seen for 35 seconds or whatever at that point is the rightful king. They sell the sequence. They sell the belief. They sell the relief yep. that their king is back. And it makes sense that that is one of those moments where you, oh, it pulls it all together. It's just like, I mean, Curtis is a master of that, of, of tightening a script with editing, with no understanding when to linger. Like that shot lingers as everybody slowly gets down on their knees and puts their weapons down and like, my king, he lets it linger and the light is such that you know, Richard is right in the center of a sunbeam shining with his big barrel chest and his fucking printed cloth armor, <laughs> um, which is, it is a personal pet peeve. It has been a pet peeve since I first understood what armor was. It, 
you just have to accept that in this era, in the 30s to the late 60s, if there is a costume drama that requires chainmail, it is basically either going to be woven and you can see that it's like a woven fabric or it's going to be printed. And basically it makes everybody look like they're wearing hoodies yeah. with chainmail print on it. Um, you just have to accept it. It's frustrating. It's annoying. But at least they tried something, you know? Um, but yeah, that's that's one of my pet peeves. But that sequence is so powerful and it directly mimics that opening sequence of how insolent he is. He gets really serious with Prince John. Yeah. And then he gets really serious, worried about King Richard. And that's it's just a nice a nice tying of of performance and theme of his personality. Yeah, it's a it- one of the things that's great about the film, especially with with Flynn's per- performance, is that he's never not on track with what we expect Robin Hood to be at any moment. There's never like these out of character moments. He's either the joyous Robin Robin Hood and his merry men, um, and we can talk about like the, everything that you would expect from a Robin Hood film is here. Uh, there's the fight on the log over the river with little John. There's the, there's the introduction of Friar Tuck, Eugene Pallet, as, as you said, who is fantastic in this movie. Um, for a guy who has such a comical froggy voice and demeanor, um, he's a badass swordsman. He, 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 he like he, he is able to carry the comedy and, and the drama really well. Alan Hale, as little John is fantastic here. Um, everything you, you could want. There's the tournament where he splits an arrow. All of that is present here. Um, but it's, it's always in service to the story. It, it does all these touch points, but Curtis and I forget who wrote this. I believe a uh, screenplay by Norman Riley Rain, Seton I. Miller and Rowland Lay. Uh, they craft a pretty tight story. Uh, it's only an hour and 40 minutes long. Uh, it is jam packed with great action set pieces, which is something we're going to talk about in a very different view when we talk about Zorro in a minute. Um, but, uh, even with all the set pieces, even with all the touchstones that it tries to do, um, it keeps the story moving and it keeps Flynn's motivation consistent throughout the entire time. I really appreciate that. Um, that being said, um, and maybe it's, it's time because we, we, we've been talking a lot about all the great stuff about this film because it is, it is delightful. It ain't perfect. <laughs> no. It ain't, it ain't perfect. And, uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you talk about the thing that you brought up earlier, but I'm, I'm just gonna bring up a real quick one. Um, man, much the Miller's son, he's really old to be the Miller's son, isn't he? Isn't he just the Miller at this point? <laughs> I mean, I guess his dad could be real old or it could be that he didn't like ever like make himself into something important. So he was, you know, it's sort of like the, like if you have an older brother and your older brother does something really great, you are just like his little brother for the rest yeah. of your life. You could be 75 and you're going to be like, oh yeah, that, your bro- you know, your, your, your dead brother's you're little always brother. going to be the Miller's son, right? Right. He, he's the Miller's son, even though he's like 60. What's um, weird is he, and this is uh, like, it's, it's weird. Cause it's something I love about, about the film. The film gives, it's not the Errol Flynn show. It's Robin right. Hood and his merry men. And it gives time to the merry men. 
Um, and we'll talk about the uselessness of Will Scarlet. But yet, I like Will Scarlet for some reason. And again, this might be like a holdover from my childhood. Um, he was always witty. He played guitar. Like to me, he was like a cool dude. He was Robin's best friend. Maybe they were more than best friends. Who knows? At that point, I was just like, that's his bosom buddy. And much the Miller son in my head as a kid was always like, well, he's looks old enough to be Robin Hood's dad, but he's the Miller's son. And they give him a lot to do. Like he has more to do probably than any other merry man. He is the most important merry man. The least important merry man is Little John. Yeah. Little John does, you know, pardon my French, but he does fuck all. He does nothing. (laughs) But I love Little Uh, John. All he does is is he gets Robin into a fight with Friar Tuck. That is the sum total of what he does. (laughs) He he's there to make fun of Friar Tuck, right? They're there to have their their banter. He's there to beat the crap out of Robin when they when they meet for the first time. And other than that, I don't know that he really does a lot. Much does a whole lot, but for some reason, I can't get over how damn old he is. So that's just, like, again, it, it takes me out every single time I watch the movie. But that's, it's a small complaint. We have more to talk about. Right. Uh, what, what beefs, if any, do you have with this, Eric? Well, Will Scarlet aside. Will Scarlet, uh, you know, <laughs> I like his Merry Men. I, I think it is funny because Munch, like, far too much of the plot is in Munch's hands. Yeah. Munch has a uh, whole side romance, like a, a whole side romance. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. The amount that they give to Munch. And it was like, was there some sort of contract thing where he had to have X amount of lines or I don't know. But it was, it is weird that he is the most pivotal character for all of the things that happen, basically, Robin Hood and his guys are just like Robin people and having a big party. And Munch is out like finding out, you know, he's the one who has to like deal with the messages from the, the, the keep. And he's got to deal with arranging this and arranging that. And he's, he just is like the critical linchpin to all of the plot devices. He's the deus ex munchina. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, there's going to be a pun in really here somewhere. Really well done. Uh, <laughs> um, sadly, not to, not to trounce on much too much. Uh, he died the next year. This was one of his last films. Oh, and he does a lovely job. It's just funny that you have a character <laughs> who's that the plot is so dependent upon. That is not like anybody in, that's important in the yeah. story. I think my, the biggest issue in this, and it's kind of the elephant in the room, is Flynn is great uh, physical actor, running, jumping, brawling. Like when he picks up that heavy ass chair and chucks it at that. Dude, oh, it's great. I mean, I'm looking and going. Even if that's like made out of balsa wood. Which it's not because of the way it hits, it doesn't break. That's not easy to just pick up a chair of that scale and then chuck it a good distance. Like he chucks it off screen to, and then they show it hitting the guy where like, you know, it fell like six inches or whatever, but he hucks that chair. He is so good when he's running and he jumps like climbs up the wall or or leaps a bunch of stairs or any of Cuts that Cuts the rope to the castle gate and then just flings himself to the top of the keep. Oh, it's, yeah. it's wonderful. He, he's wonderful, a physical presence, a physical actor. He has great control of his body to do, you know, athletic things. 
his bow technique is crap to say the least. Also like he's using, like he's carrying around a uh, not full size long bow, but a very long bow. And he never pulls it back more than about a foot. Like, and he's firing it. Like he's doing the, the equivalent of the gangsters in the last 30 years of movies where they fire the gun, the gun sideways. sideways. Yeah. Cause that's going to be more accurate somehow. Um, he does that with the bow and like it's as if each shot was shot from a cannon but I've watched people fire like the kind of bow that he would have used if he was using a long bow and it's a full body draw to, to do that and you have to have massive chest and big arms like it is a physical thing that you have to do for years to get good at he's just kind of like plink you know he, he might as well be firing like the little plastic bows we all played with as kids. You know, like it has no, it doesn't have any weight to it, but that's still, it's more believable than his sword fighting. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I, I, I get what you're saying about the bow fighting. It never bothered me. It's one of those things like, like anything else of, you know, films of the day, I kind of get wrapped up in what is happening that I don't, that I don't think about it too much, even though I know now through years and years of seeing other things and reading about that stuff that I can look past that. But to your point, I cannot look past, I cannot look past the sword fighting, especially when his first sword fight, it literally looks like he's waving to get rid of a spider. (laughs) It's not good. It's not good. And what makes it worse is he's fighting against Basil Rathbone, who in every instance of this film looks like he's going to kill Robin at any minute. But because he's the bad guy, he can't. So he's constantly fainting and pulling back. I I was saying to you before we started recording, I watched with my wife today. And my wife was the first one. She's like, oh. I'm surprised he didn't just kick his ass because Robin is terrible at sword fighting and they yeah. do tricks to like make it better. They, they undercrank the camera to, 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 you know, to make it look faster, but it, it definitely looks like a young boy waving a wooden sword around pretending well, to be a pirate or to pretending to be a Robin hood at that point. What's funny is it's a lot better than his captain blood fight with Basil <laughs> Rathbone, but that that was okay because Captain Blood in the story is a doctor. Is a doctor, right? Right. Robin Hood, you know, he beats Friar Tuck, who's supposed to be like one of the five best swordsmen in the land or whatever. Like he's supposed to be incredible. And he beats him pretty not 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 like super bad, but it's like pretty even. Yeah. And you can almost forgive how that fight looks because they're fighting thigh deep in water. So it's not gonna have the foot. The, you know, the, the foot movement and the, you know, all of that. But when he is fighting Basil Rathbone at this point, I mean, he became a better swordsman. Like if you go and watch the Sea Wolf or the Seahawk, I'm sorry, that is two years later, it's much better. Um, but in this, like his two main moves appear to be either holding his sword up wherever he's supposed to so Rathbone can hit it. Or you watch his eyes and he's just looking at where, like in the choreography, is supposed to hit Rathbone's sword. Which, I mean, he wasn't a swordsman. Rathbone was. I understood Rathbone has to do the heavy lifting. But it's so clear, like, 
there's one famous part of the fight of the big fight scene at the end where you see their shadows on the wall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As they're fighting. And it is very clear it is not Flynn. <laughs> it is the guy who choreographed the fights fighting Rathbone. Because they tr- they do this transition where like you see the shadows and it's gorgeous and they're fighting. And then the camera like moves as they move and he comes into shot and it, you, it's the back of supposed to be the back of Flynn, but it is a broader, smaller man, very clearly. And then they go to close up, they shot, you know, see the two of them again. But they did everything they could to make it work. And it's mostly passable, but every once in a while he is basically doing what Danny Kay made fun of in the court jester, where he's just like, uh, yeah, swinging it around like and every and he's like so out of control. People don't attack him because they don't know what he's going to do. It's it's completely unpredictable. It, it it it's funny as particularly because we both watched Zorro recently. It's it's pretty tough to watch <laughs> this it is. and and deal with the sword fighting. It still looks cool most of the time. But if you're looking at what's happening, it is really Basil Rathbone is hitting a stick. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is even and even that sequence that you said it like, despite the fact that we're somewhat making fun of it, it works. It works in the film when they cut away and then you see the silhouette on the wall uh, and then it comes back. Gorgeous. It's, still, it's still beautiful to look at, but it is very much take two seconds to kind of divest, divest yourself from the story. And it's clack, 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 lunge, clack, 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 lunge, duck, clack. Like it is that sequence to a T where it doesn't look like they're trying to kill each other. It looks like they're trying to connect to cross swords three times before they attack. It, it's, but it's a small, the thing that I'll say is, and, and we, we, we probably need to wrap up and talk about our second film. It's a, they're small sins. They're sins that right. when you are, I'll, I'll say this. Every time I watch the movie, even though I'm, I'm close to 50, you are way closer to 50 because it's a matter of days for you. But, uh, it, it, anytime I watch the film, there is a large part of me that goes back to being six, seven years old and seeing this movie for the first time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, that's the draw of a swashbuckler for me. So I can forgive it. It's, it's, it's pieces that seem very dated or seem very obvious now because, I'm, I'm swept up in the romance and I'm swept up in the story and I'm swept up in the charisma and the larger than life images that I'm seeing, um, on, on the screen. And as we'll see when we talk about our next film, we wanted to start with kind of the, the real big progenitors of the genre. We could have gone earlier. And further right. back, and 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 there are we probably will at some point talk about kind of the the silent swashbuckler classics because there are well, some doozies to talk about. But uh, we, we could just do Douglas Fairbanks. You could just do a Robin whole thing Hood of yeah. and Zorro because <laughs> right? he did both of those. Yeah, but I think when we talk about modern swashbucklers, like this, this set this set a lot of precedents that a lot of movies followed in the, the, the yeah. future. So I, I, I so easily forgive it. It's, it's small. I don't even want to say sins. Cause I, I hate that stupid cinema sense shit, but like I forgive it. It's minor kind of faux pas and it's, and it's quaintness at times uh, just because 
of this. It feels even now like a larger than life spectacle. And it, it, it will always be that for me watching this film. Yeah. No, it's, it's a joy. If these minor, uh, inconsequential quibbles that we have, if five, if it's a, if five stars is perfect, this is a 4.99 something. Yeah. <laughs> like it's I, that, <laughs> that minor quibble. It's, um, yeah. If it, it's, 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 it's so minor a quibble that it's, it's the type of film that the, the quibbles almost in a small way add to the charm. Like it, 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 it never is going to diminish my love of the film. 4.999 oh. is uh, good enough for me. Uh, Eric, I wonder if we will hit the same number talking about our next film. second film is the 1940 Tyrone Power Swashbuckler, The Mark of Zorro. A simple tale about Don Diego Vega, uh, a man who was born in privilege, raised by the Alcalde of Los Angeles. Man, my Spanish is terrible. The, you know, the guy who was set to rule Los Angeles in the so early... So was Tyrone Powers. Since he was Irish, oh, that's true. <laughs> yes, there is not a lot of good Spanish in this mo- in this movie. But at any rate, he is called back. He thinks his father still rules Los Angeles. He finds out his father has been deposed. This new alcalde, uh, Quintero, is robbing all the you know, just taxing all the peons and torturing them and doing all the bad things that that Prince John was doing, and so. Don Diego is just incensed by this, but he knows he has to play a, a, a couple of games to make to make a difference. So first, he decides to present himself as a fop. Just all he cares about is wealth and luxury and all those things that he fell in love with in Spain. So no one expects that he is anything but that. And then he becomes El Zorro, the fox. And as Zorro, he dresses all in black, iconically, and he, you know, tries to right the wrongs. He, you know, he steals from the rich to give to the poor, et cetera, et cetera. It all comes to a head, and it ends the way it can only end with Don Diego uh, revealed and triumphant. But the plot, this movie isn't about the plot. Like, not at all. The plot is just there to hang much, even less so than Robin Hood. I think this is less concerned with the actual plot and more about how absurd can we make Tyrone power in both guises (laughs) and how stupid can we make everyone else in the film? And I think on that. No, it succeeds uh, triumphantly. I mean, this there is a reason that this was a massive hit and has become a classic. It's in some ways, I think, because it is Americans an American story. It feels almost more quintessentially swashbucklery than Robin Hood. 
it doesn't it doesn't feel like an adventure story do you know i mean it, that's part you know splitting hairs in some ways but it is all of the things that we've decided a swashbuckler are from you know fighting for a just cause against overwhelming odds um fighting for the the little guy romancing the woman Cracking jokes, great sword fights. It's all here. It is, <laughs> um, and I and I, I I tend to agree with you. I mean, this is in a lot of ways. I didn't think about it until you mentioned it. This is basically Robin Hood light. Um, it's Robin Hood slightly distilled. Um, it, it is not as concerned with adventure. It's not as concerned with the swashbuckle. It is a swashbuckler. Um, it, it bears all the earmarks. We were talking off camera, uh, off podcast before about kind of, you know, what are the tenets of a swashbuckler? It has that light, airy sense of adventure, even though this is not really an adventure film. I, I, I think it's massive success is really due to one thing. Uh, and that one thing is holy shit, Tyrone power. Uh, holy shit, Tyrone power. (laughs) I mean, he is unbelievable in this movie. Um, couple things that I'll point out and let's talk about this. Uh, so 1940. So we're talking two years later, not Warner Brothers, but Universal. Um, not Michael Curtiz, but Robert Mamoulian. Um, this was a, uh, Daryl Zanuck production. Um, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, the, uh, this is about a, uh, a, a young wealthy person who has to turn to the life of an outlaw to depose the corrupt usurper, uh, whose right hand man is also played by Basil Rathbone, uh, Ca- Captain Esteban Pasquale. Uh, this also features, we were talking earlier, uh, this also features Eugene Pallet as, uh, not Friar Tuck, but Friar Felipe. In a very similar role. And I, I believe he also, uh, uses a sword in this, in this movie. Um, instead of Olivia de Havilland, we have the beautiful, um, Linda Darnell, um, as Lolita Quintero, the, um, niece of the corrupt Quintero, the new, um, Al- alcalde. But none of that really matters to your point. All of this is really about, um, how amazing can we make Tyrone power and how can he kind of outwit, um, the bumbling garrison to bring his father who was deposed back into power. And to your point, I, th- I think the magic here is that we never really see Robin other than Robin Hood. And we, we talked about like the two different versions of Robin Hood. There's the, there's the leader of the merry men and then there's the committed crusader to the cause of restoring King Richard to the throne. But it's still the same person. And what Tyrone Power does here as Don Diego Vega and as El Zorro, I think is, I think it's astounding. I, I, I think, and we had talked about this as, as well. I enjoy this movie. I think it's fun. I think it has some things that are amazing. And we'll talk about the one particular thing in a little bit. But this to me is a movie that, man, I wish served Tyrone Power better because Tyrone Power is so good in this movie. And I would actually argue, um, Basil Wraithbone, uh, who is largely kind of sidelined in Robin Hood. He, he's the bad guy, but he just kind of gets pushed to the side, made to kind of be like the, just the, 
generic villain who dies at the end. He essentially plays the same role here, but it's so much tastier when he's working yeah. off of power and he's working with Mamoulian, who, um, doing some reading really didn't care about the swashbuckling part at all, which is why you don't get the first bit of swashbuckling until 34 fucking minutes in this movie. This movie really only has two set pieces and it's an hour and a half long. Um, Mamoulian cared about the people. He cared about the characters. He cared about the exchange. Um, and when he does that, you get a towering performance by Tyrone Power. You get a delicious, the role that Claude Rains had in Robin Hood is given to Basil Rathbone here. Uh, yeah. Quintero is just a, like a mealy mouth kind of weaselly stand in for the throne. The real power is Captain Esteban and it's, he's, he's wicked and delightful and finally can use his sword skills against somebody who can, who can match him kind of beat for beat here. Um, but ultimately I kind of come away with just like, man, I, Tyrone Power is so good. I wish the rest of the movie held up, Eric. Like, is there, am I being too hard on it? Like, is there something that I'm missing? I, I, I really came away with like, there are two big set pieces. The second set piece really beyond the fight between, I don't want to spoil anybody, but guess what? Zoro beats Basil Rathbone besides that sword fight, which we'll talk about. Like the rest well, of the climb. Not, but it's not Zoro. It's not Zoro. Don Diego. Which makes it even better. Yeah. I mean, yes. we, we need to talk just about that, yeah. that, that sequence. But after that, when you have the ultimate revolution that kind of finalizes things, it's kind of lackluster. Uh, what am I missing from the movie that maybe I'm being a little too hard on? I think you're being too hard on it for a couple of reasons. One, you don't have any nostalgia for this the way that you do. Robin Hood. No, you're a hundred percent right. I did see right. it as a child, but it was not one of those constant rotation. No, it wasn't one films. of those movies that was on every couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think without that, I think you, I'm not saying you're overestimating Robin Hood because I think Robin Hood is just, it's one of my favorite films too. And I've seen it more times than I can count. Um, one of my most watched movies, but you're complaining about the fact that this is a Tyrone Power showcase. And I would say 80% of the lines in the movie are Tyrone Powers. Yeah. So you're complaining about, you're saying he deserved a better movie, but they don't give meat to the other roles because Tyrone Power is just chewing up everything. Oh, he's he eating is. the scenery. He's eating everything. And he dominates every other actor. Like, in a way that Flynn, at that point in, in Robin Hood, he just can't. No. But until you get even like the the sort of verbals sparring with uh, Basil Rathbone, he just doesn't have anyone that can match him. Whatever he's doing, yeah. so good point. So I think you're. I think you are being a little hard because he is that much of the movie is just marveling at him. And that's awesome. But I do think that also the the characters that he's given to spar with, whether it is with his father and the friar, who are the disappointment that the the child that they raised to be this, you know, to be like his father and like the friar, the friar who taught him how to hold his first sword their disappointment at this 
fop who keeps taking he keeps taking out his oh. his handkerchief and dabbing his mustache. And if or he's not taking he, out the handkerchief, he's taking out the monocle, which is like a or, trapezoid monocle. It's, it's or the wonderful. snuff, the, or like the snuff. The, he there's this sequence where it's like very t- like the tension's rising, and he takes out this little snuff thing. And he does a little snuff, and then he shakes his hand like shaking water off of his hand to shake the dust off, and then he does the other nostril and shakes his hand again, and then he takes out the ever-present <laughs> handkerchief. And you're just like, oh my, this, because you know that's a lie. Like, that's part of the magic of this film, is just watching Tyrone pull the wool over everyone else, yeah. but the audience is always in on it. And that's magical. Like, because you see Don Diego at the beginning, and he doesn't want to fight. He throws, you know, after the Spanish, he gets graduates from the Spanish Academy, he throws his sword up into the ceiling. I'm not going to need this. I'm going to California where I'm going to get married, have fat babies, and and watch my grapes grow. Which gets, that line gets repeated because it's so right. forward-thinking and progressive. Um, <laughs> but at any rate... He, he puts it all aside and then you see his anger immediately well up when he gets on the boat with that guy because he doesn't know that his father is no longer the alcalde. He And you can almost see it dawn on him that they can't be talking about my father when he, his coachman, when he meets the coachman who has had his tongue pulled out his for- His ripped out, yeah. Yeah, for bad-mouthing the alcalde. You see it dawn on him that can no, that cannot be my father. Something has happened. And then when he goes to his home and it's not his home, and the you know the the guard tells him no, this you know this is the alcalde is like oh you know good to see you, but like your dad's back at your house. Um, he you see the his stance change and he softens his shoulders and you see him kind of immediately drop the military guy. Yeah. And the fop just oozes out of him. <laughs> it, like it's like the grease in his hair. Perfect description. Just it slides down, drops his shoulders, and he tilts a little bit, and he just has a different walk and a different vibe about him. And he's plays dainty and he talks about, you know, the newest fashions and the aromas and all that. Like he's He's just so good all the way through this, and it's those little things like the the ch- you you talk about that change of character. Boom! It's it's it just happens, and you're like, wow! It's a tour de force acting performance where almost everyone else in the the script is all built around people setting him up to do some yeah. other badass thing. Yeah. So to good point, it's it's such a different film. It's not a kid's film. It's not. That's part of it. And But maybe part of me wishes that it were a little bit more of a kid's film. I, I totally get it. And I, and I kind of now feel a little foolish. Like the thing I love the most about this is how amazing Tyrone Power is. So it's hard to be upset when the film is like, here's an hour and a half of Tyrone Power being amazing. 
Because right. there is not a moment where he is not amazing in this movie. It is, we talked about on an earlier episode of Cinema Duel, we covered Nightmare Alley, which is one of his later right. films. And in his, his essay, favorite film, his favorite film. Um, but man, I would put his performance there toe to toe with his performance here just for how quickly he is able to kind of shift personas and how acute he is and kind of reading the room and, and acting against it. Um, at the end when he's in jail and he pulls the magic trick to escape, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's not quite the fop. It's just the bored rich dude. Right. Who doesn't care about what he's doing, but he's doing it so perfectly so that he can escape the jail. Uh, right. It's, it, it's, he's, it's, he's meant to not be terrible. You know, he's like, I'm not scared. Yeah. My dad, my dad's like one of the big, nothing's going to really happen to me. You know, like that's the vibe he gives off. Right. When he knows it's a life and death situation. It's, 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 it's perfect. But at the same time, I can't help but think, and maybe this is a way to kind of talk about some of the other stuff too. There are really only two big sequences in the film. There's the sequence where he, uh, and there are, there are small flourishes. And again, like this is why, I love Tyrone Power so much, even when it's not a huge action set piece like the escape from the church when he dresses up and talk about personas. He also plays a priest very briefly in this role, and he's so caught up with being in lust slash love with uh, Linda Darnell that he has to he has to kind of like fix himself momentarily when she asks if she should be saving herself for the church. He's like, oh, no, 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 you should be. uh Having babies, lots of babies. It's, it's a great moment. Um, but just there, like the small quick sequences, the first time we see him as, as Zorro, they're posting up like a new, like taxation thing. I, I think it was the thing with, Hey, moving forward, you're going to be doing this and doing that. Um, yeah. And everything's going to be paid in wine. And everything's going to be paid. So the, 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 this was the everything's paid in wine. And out of every 10 wine bottles, two will be set aside for the alcalde. Zorro runs up and in full shot, like they don't cut. It's, it's wonderful. He takes his sword, whips the poster off and it like floats in the most incredible way that it's like, that was just fucking luck of the shot. And then he, he rings the other thing, whips it out and then puts the other thing on. Um, there are those little moments of dexterity, those little moments of precision in his movements that are wonderful. And he does it time and time again, but I, I, I still, wish and crave because of when we talk about the final kind of fight scene, he's so good. The sword fighting in this is heads and tails above anything else that I've seen up to this point, you know, talking about 1940. Um, I wish there were more of it. Uh, and, and it, I get that this is not a movie concerned with that, but when it happens, the action is phenomenal. It's just too far, few and far between for me. Well, my question is, would it hit the same if you had seen him fight? Like fight like that. Because part of it is he, you know that he's good because he has a reputation at his military school and he holds his own against like the guards and stuff and gets away, you know, whatever. But he doesn't really show any, you don't see it. You're told about it and you're told Zoro did this and Zoro did that. And they, they smartly talk a lot about the things that he's doing off camera in a way that they don't with Robin Hood as much. Like you really only hear him talking about what they've shown you. There's 
it, which is a different way of doing it. But yeah. so you have this rep, but you don't know. And then you have the fight. And it's the first time both, you know, like, and again, they've talked a lot about Captain Esteban's prowess. He used to be a fencing instructor, but he was just, you know, he was disgraced. And I heard it was over a woman and whatever. He killed a man and it was over a woman. And so he had to flee. So there's a lot of talking about building both of their reps up. And I think unlike, you know, with Robin Hood, it is, you know, you need to see him shoot some people show like, you know, that he shoots as they're signing the thing, like an arrow comes down and it's like, (gasps) and and he has to split the arrow and do all this stuff. Like you have to show Robin Hood being Robin Hood. One of the magics of this film is that they don't, they build it up and build it up and then it matches your expectation. And then you want more after because it was so good. But I think if you had had e- shown either of them like fighting people before that, it, maybe it could work. But part of the whole thing is you d- like, Zoro's doing this stuff, but he's not doing it against armed guards. Like the one time he breaks in, he's got a gun. Yeah. <laughs> right. But um, I do want to mention a thing of dexterity, which you brought up before. When he robs the Al- alcalde and takes the necklace from his wife, whoever is riding the horse leans down with his sword and pulls the pin. Yes. With the tip of his sword, pulls the Same pin. Same thing. That lets the horses free, that attaches the horse horses to the carriage, just casually, and he flips it, like, boop. So nonchalant. Like, I do this all the time. <laughs> yep. When that ha- it was just like with the poster. When I saw that, I was like, oh my, well, that's, and that, so I get what you're saying, because if you look at it that way, and you see these tiny moments, you're getting the glimpse of what you're going to see at the climax, and it gets me so excited. I, I would love to d- digress a little bit from like the plot and the, those things. I want to talk about some technical stuff in this. Oh, film. please. Yeah. Let's. Because there's so many really interesting filmmaking choices. Like even the way, like, yes, we t- the, the theme of this, the, the musical theme for Zorro is awesome. But I love in the beginning where the music is playing and they, show this field of, of soldiers sword fighting and the, the clacks of their swords against each other becomes a beat that the music is cut to. It's a little thing, but it just immediately you're like, Oh, like you take, this is the first, this is the first sequence of the film. First shot you see. And immediately you're like, Oh, like it, there's something interesting going on here. It grabs you because of the way the music and the visual work together and that they become one thing. It's the same thing touch. with the, uh, with, with the, in that same scene, there's the horse charging and right. they're, they're slashing at the little, like, I don't know if they're like butter or like what those, those things are that are there, but like that martial kind of March 
that the clacking of the swords is then taken up by the swishing as the horses go back and they hit the mounts there. Oh, it's a beautiful moment. It's a beautiful opening because you, you, you expect to dive into the meat of the story and instead you start in fucking Spain. And, and right. this, it, it's, it's a beautiful de- decision to start the movie that way. I would say too, like to talk technically, there's some great use of, so we, 1938 Robin Hood, there's the three strip Technicolor. There are certain things that you're able to do because it's color, but there's certain things you probably can't do that this movie takes advantage of. One of my favorite moments, even though it's obvious when you see it, is the escape from the church. Um, the, the great horse chase, right? So the, the first yeah. big set piece and there's the optical plate where he rides across the small bridge and all of the rest of the horsemen kind of fall into the pit. And it's a great moment. And you can obviously see as you're going through that optical plate, because as they start to all kind of crowd around the edge and fall through, it's transparent. They start to kind of go through the bushes magically. But to me, it doesn't detract from the beauty of how they affect that shot. It's it's a gorgeous sequence. Yeah. And there's another part of that sequence of the horse chase. And they used it before in the ship. When he's sailing from Spain to America, the camera, it is a ship on a flat sea and the camera rocks just to give you the idea of ship motion. You never see him on the ship. It's not a part of the story, but it gives you motion when they're doing the, they start off on the horse chase. When they show him, there's, like the first time you see him, the camera is, is moving slow, like to the beat of his, of his, the horse's hoofs. It's tilting. It's going do, 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 And then you see the riders coming after him and it's a mass of them. And the camera goes, do, 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 like it, it matches the thundering of their hooves. Yeah. And it's not a lot of motion, but it just has enough shake to give you that feeling. And it's just a little thing. Um, the way that when they, f- they first show the peons and they're all like in the sun with their big hats and they're all tilted faces down, downtrodden. The women have their heads covered. The men have their hats and everyone is looking down and you don't need to know anything about their situation because everything is in the posture of how they've set up that shot you know that they're all downtrodden they're literally turned to the fl- turned to the ground it's it's a little thing but it gives you the story of their situation without having to explicitly spell it out yeah um, uh, or like the the chapel scene which i think both of us think is a stellar bit of acting from both parts the lighting in that, the way that she stays fully lit. Oh, man. And powers, when he is looking away from her, you can see his eyes in the shadow of the, the monk's hood. But as he turns to her, he turns into complete blackness. It's amazing. And it is right next to her face. Yeah. And then when they move to sit, it continues. Like, the lighting stays the same. She is lit, and he is in shadow. It's and such a gorgeous scene. It's one of those scenes where, and we'll talk about this in recommendations, I know, 
this movie needs a new transfer. This movie needs to be cleaned up and transferred because it, it, that, that scene is gorgeous as it is. And it deserves every bit of care to preserve that, that, that sequence. It's, it's a, and and again, like we, we talk about there aren't action, but that, that sequence is as dramatic and powerful as almost any action sequence. It's all there. Like the tension is there. The, the fear, the attraction, like the balance of his heart and his thoughts and the danger he knows he's in and the danger he's putting her in. And all of that is portrayed in a scene where you don't see his face. It is, um, it is my second favorite scene in the entire movie. Um, we should probably, because I think we're going to spend a lot of time on it. We should probably talk about the best scene in the movie well, though, Eric. <laughs> uh, before we go to the best scene, cause I, I do agree with that. What are besides the, the, you want more action. Mm-hmm. What are your quibbles with this film? So my quibble, my other quibble with the film, it will lead into the, my favorite scene in the movie is that I, I, I was talking about with, with Robin Hood that Robin Hood was a film that was unafraid to be kind of dramatic and graphic with what it is trying to portray. Um, and my other quibble with Zorro is, Zorro takes a much more cautious path with the danger and violence inherent in the story that it's telling. Um, Zorro, with one exception that we will talk about in a moment, kills no one. And some of the stuff that he does is quite brutal. There's, there's, when he escapes from the church, there's a great moment that leads to the horse chase where He's in robes and he's leaving the church and a guard comes by and says, Hey, you stop there. You dropped something. And he dropped his Zorro mask and they have a quick sword fight. And it's again, even in those like 10 seconds of that sword fight, it's brilliant. And he clearly stabs the guy right through his torso. You see the sword come out the other side of his body and the guy drops to the ground. But to ensure that he's not actually dead, he keeps writhing and moaning just to let you know, hey, he's not actually dead. Zorro didn't kill someone. Zorro just incapacitated someone. Later on, there's another scene where um, there was the evil captain who had been um, torturing people, although you never see the torture. He'd been torturing people to collect the taxes. Um, Zorro kidnaps him. And as they're trying to figure out what happened to this um, captain of the guard, he is literally, and it's a great moment, thrown over the wall of the garrison. And you see him writhing again. They're like, oh, my God, he's dead. Zorro killed the captain of the guard. But he's not. They make very clear to show you, oh, no, he's perfectly alive. And in this case, it almost kind of works because the big reveal is his shirt is off and he's laying on his stomach. When they roll him over, there's a Z with no blood uh, carved into his back. Um, if I have a quibble, the quibble is how largely bloodless this film is, considering it is about a corrupt alcalde who is basically terrorizing and stripping the lives of the town of Los Angeles. And even when we get to post the one of the greatest sequences of all time and we come to the the Payons finally rallying around the true hero, which to a point you made earlier is not Zorro, is Don Diego Vega. Um, 
it's a bloodless affair. I, I see no one die. I, I see no one, even though there's this massive fight, I really see no consequence. It's just a bunch of people just kind of blindly swinging at each other. Um, yeah, that, that from the, the Errol Flynn school of sword fighting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wanted it to have a little bit more impact. It's a minor quibble because again, when you're caught up in the moment, I just let it go. It's one of those things right. where afterwards I'm like, man, that was a lot of like fighting. No one died. That's weird. When two years ago, everyone dies. Like people are getting shot and killed left and right. And it's weird how, and, and I don't know if it's a studio thing or what, but it's weird how bloodless this actually is of a film. I think that, I think that's a fair quibble because it is, uh, Zoro's the greatest sword fighter, but apparently he is about as good at killing people as like G.I. Joe is at shooting Cobra. And you could argue he doesn't want to kill people, right? He, like to right. the point you made earlier, he's done with that life. He throws his never, sword. But they never have hit, they never have anyone say which would have a, a simple way to answer it would be in these stories that are being told about Zoro that he you know he does all this without you know, without taking a life because that is, you know, he is beyond that or whatever. Um, yeah. You could have that said so that it would feel a little bit better explained. Um, I, I, to Mike, it's funny. I have less quibbles with this than Robin Hood, though I think Robin Hood is a better move. I, I love Robin Hood more. I think this might actually be a better movie. Hmm. Um. On a technical level, I think Curtiz is kind of limited somewhat by shooting the first Technicolor film that the studio had done and all these, all these other things. The fact that Errol Flynn wasn't the original person cast, et cetera. Um, but I'm glad that James Cagney walked out of his contract. Oh, thank goodness. Cause God, the, that, no. Um, but my quibbles here are because very there's not a lot for the other actors to chew on they all become kind of one note parody performances so like i mean i actually love j edward bromberg's uh, alcalde quintero i think he's the he is absolutely the perfect guy like the perfect actor to be a puppet dude but he basically becomes i do really good bug eye double takes yeah and so that is becomes his reaction to everything his wife just wants to go to madrid and be fashionable and thinks that she can you know and is in love with don diego because he's a fop his wife um, um i'm looking now gail sondergaard as inez yeah she's fantastic i think oh. she's phenomenal I would say everybody's fantastic. They just are a little cart, you know, two dimensional. It's, it's almost, and we, we, again, this is something we talked about kind of off the podcast, but to me, and it, it goes in line where, where I really was introduced with Zorro was the Guy Williams iteration from Disney in the late fifties. So right. when I watched this, part of me is getting confused with, all of the episodes of Zorro that I saw as a kid, but a lot of the performances here speak to me like Disney performances. So to your point, like, um, 
I'm looking now. It looks like it's uh, J. Edward Bromberg yeah. <laughs> playing Don Luis Quintero, which is, look, a problematic thing that we don't need to get into on this episode. But he well, feels it, like a Disney character. Is it weird that there's a Hungarian Jewish actor playing a. No, not. A, I mean, not in 1940s Universal Studio. No. Of course they, not. Hey, nobody's in brownface. Thank goodness. And if they are, Thank we goodness. don't know because this is in black and white. But. Right. A lot of the performances, with the exception of Tyrone Power, it feels like a Disney. This feels like a Disney production to me. That's that's maybe my larger complaint with the film. Yeah, I can see that they're they're kind of one dimensional. Yeah. I like, but but at the same time, like Gail Sundergaard is Inez Quintero. It's one note, but it's such a great it's a note. Beautiful you don't note. care, right? It's a pure C, right? It's like, hey, I'm only playing one note, but have you ever heard that note sound so sonorous, right? Right. I mean, that's that's one of the things. Like Eugene Pallet, he's basically playing Friar Tuck, right? But you love Friar Tuck. You love that. Yeah. That one note is so good, and he has my favorite line. In the movie, and it's it it's so innocuous, but I love when when Don Diego, you know, says kind of like brings all the stolen shit to him and says, "Hey, save this. This is going to go back to the people." And he realizes, "Wait a minute, wait. Does that mean wait? You're Zorro?" And he goes, "My boy, my boy, <laughs> my Diego." And it cuts, to, and that's like the end of the like that's the closing yeah. line of a, that scene. And it's so great because it's the it's exactly what you want to hear right then from that actor. Big smile on your face immediately, <laughs> like. Uh, you know, Don Diego's got an ally and it's, of course it's his old teacher. And, oh, you know, like you just, it warms your heart. It does. But, but all of the, but again, like there, I don't think his dad is even two dimensional. I think he's a no. dot. His, his father does, is just like, my son is a disappointment. My son is a disappointment. And then at the end, he's like, my disappointment. I am with you. Like, <laughs> he's just, not gay. Thank God. It's like, that's right. what his father sounds like to me. Right. He's not gay. And he did actually listen to me. We're good. <laughs> like, whatever. But he's, he's less of a character than anybody else. Completely. But, yeah. So I do understand that criticism. You, they are stereotypes, whatever, but. I mean, they're not racial stereotypes; they're just stereotype stock characters. But they're they're the right actors in all of those roles. They make it work, and they're wonderful foils for Tyrone Power. Yeah. And speaking of foils, please. <laughs> now, the fight scene at the end that Chris wishes there were more of, and I think it's just perfect as it is, <laughs> is. Notable for most importantly, Tyrone Power looks comfortable. He looks present in the duel. He looks like he knows what he's doing. These are all things you cannot say about Errol Flynn with a sword. And Tyrone Power and Basil Rathbone have a fight that is that there's only I have one minor quibble about. And when I say minor, it's like, eh. but 
it is one of the great sword fights. Oh, man. Ever put on film. And I think you said something really key earlier, because I made the mistake of saying when Zoro fights Captain Esteban at the end, and you were very clear, Zoro does not fight Captain Esteban at the end. Don Diego no. does. And that makes all the difference in this fight. It's the dandy fop fighting the sword instructor. And yeah, it, I mean, I'm hard pressed right now to tell you a better sword fight I've ever seen in my life. It does so many things that like a perfect fight scene should do. First of all, if we want to go all the way to um, modern Chinese um, martial art photography and cinematography when you're fighting martial art scenes, the first like full 30 seconds of this fight is one shot, full screen, full body, no cutting. There's no back and forth. There's no from behind. It is, hey, let me show you that these motherfuckers can move. And they move like gods. Like, they literally move like gods. First of all, Tyrone Power as Don Diego Vega, wearing perhaps the tightest pants known to mankind. You you talked before (laughs) about the perfect symmetry of his legs and his little tiny calves. I don't think anyone has ever worn tighter pants in their lives on ho- in Hollywood the, than Tyrone Power in this movie. A, a quick aside. <laughs> if you're a fan of Moose Knuckles, this <laughs> film movie. has more Moose Knuckles than I've ever seen in any film. From the opening shot of yes. Tyrone Power. <laughs> Robin Hood may have like, more violence. This has way more Moose Knuckle. <laughs> like, well, I, I even thought about that because I watched, uh, re-watching the films, I watched... Zorro before mm-hmm. Robin Hood. And Robin Hood, they've all got, they're all wearing tights, they have but those, they've all got tops that go down. Those tunics that go below. Right. right. That cut, that go just below the crotch. So you, you never see anything. But all I can tell you is that no one is wearing underwear. From uh, At least there's nothing, there's no visible lines. <laughs> there isn't. And there's no hint of support. And it is Moose Knuckle Central through the whole cast. It is mesmerizing. I mean, after a while, it's kind of funny because you're just like, which side's it going to be on? (laughs) (laughs) It's, I mean, I I love that we make this aside in the, while we're talking about the best part of the film. However, let's be fair. Let's be clear too. Tyrone Power is a lefty. He's a left hanger, but. Yeah, it just yeah. it is what but, it is. But Basil is a switch hitter. But he's a switcher. <laughs> it yeah, is like watching thoroughbreds. I mean, it is it is the lines are astounding. But I mean, talk about a modern fight. It's there. Yeah. There's no cutting at first. There's no undercranking. Like I watched it no. three times. This is at speed to see yeah. if they were cheating. They don't cheat. And the, the, the other part that I love about it. So it's, 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 it's not the medieval swords that we see in Robin Hood. And I didn't even talk about it. at the end of the big fight with uh, Basil Rathborn and Robin Hood. You can noticeably see my wife and I pointed it out. Robin Hood's sword is almost bent in half. It's just this yeah. crooked thing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, these are foils. This is fencing. This is sword fighting at its finest. And as the fight goes on, they are drenched in sweat. You see the physical toll that this fight takes. It is, it's, it's a mate. It's amazing. It might be the best sword fighting I've ever seen on camera. 
I, I can't think of a better film. It's the best from that era by far. Oh, without a doubt. I, I mean, I, I, I honestly can't think of another studio Hollywood film right. like that that and does it, this. And there's no stunt fighting. There's no. Nope. There's you. You don't have any of the like cinematic Robin Hood shadow shots or any or fighting through forty seven different sets. They're in. They're in two rooms. Basically, that are connected by an open doorway. Yeah. That's it. But there are multiple levels. They still find ways to make that creative, right? right? Because they, there's like that he ledge jumps up on, on the window piece where the hidden door is, and right. they keep turning. And then- And he trips on a pillow and- Oh, it's yeah. so great. Yeah. Which is like, they do that in Robin Hood. In Robin Hood, there's the scene where they knock Robin over under like a candelabra thing that kind of falls over him. And he, he throws a yeah. candle at Guy Gisborne and fights. Here, he falls over a pillow and it seems- not nearly as threatening. It's a pillow. It's so much better. It's so much more athletic. It's so much more dexterous and precise. It speaks well, to the, all the hints that we there saw is earlier. no pause for it. Not at all. That's the when he trips on the pillow, the fight continues on the ground. Like he is fighting as he's yeah. on his back. Like there's no pause. There's no okay. Now let me throw this. Then I'll scramble up. You know, there isn't anything to reset. He has to fight a re- to get a reset. And then um, ultimately he wins. And that's the other moment that just like, it's the one moment of blood in the film. Well, there's two moments. There's a moment where he scratches Don Diego and, and you see like a quick close up of like a scratch, but then he kills Captain Esteban. And it's so wonderful. It takes me out of the movie, but it takes me out of the movie in a way that I kind of love because he stabs him. And rather there be real blood, again, optical effect, they animate a small pool of blood kind of grow in a circle around Basil Rathbone as he drops to the ground and dies. And it's just one of those moments that's like, man, yep, 1940. <laughs> this is how they did it. But yeah, it's it, pre-blood pack. But it's lovely. It's it's even it even though it takes you out, it takes me out and draws me in at the same time. And it's one of those things I love about the sequence. You could almost say that there are two stages of this fight. There's the fight up until Rathbone gets his hit on the shoulder of Tyrone Power. And Tyrone Power says something along the lines of like, ah, I needed that to get me going. Like, yeah, thank. Like, and then like all sent all any hint of the fop disappears because when he fights off the shoulders get wider that like he's he's in his full power and he knows i have this this guy just pissed me off now i'm going to show him what don diego can really do and it it's it's a much subtler transformation than the the where he sort of oozes down into the fop but he's fighting like pretty normal and you know he's and he's fighting hard but the look on his face and the change in his posture posture he immediately is like it's over you cut me fair enough <laughs> now i'm going to show you how to do this and he just beats him rathbone's backing up like what are we going to do what are we going to do and and he just nope too bad kid and and of course Again, we talk about shots. He stabs Rathbone, who who stays in place along the wall, and then he hits the wall 
And when he slides down the picture, picture falls. that 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 falls because when he hit it, it went off off the post and was sitting on his shoulders. You can see it like rise up. And then when he falls forward, the picture falls, and it's the mark of Zorro that he had left earlier in the movie. <clears throat> and at that point, the guy, the guard comes up from the basement through the secret passage, which is how he had been getting in and out with and left the mark before. It's like it, yes. it it's so beautifully told. Well, it's funny and 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 that's where the beauty of Mamillion's direction comes into play. It's in like again, he had no interest in doing an adventure film, but he plants all those seeds cuz the earlier scene where Zorro comes in and threatens the alcalde to like, hey, you know, leave and and go to Spain and and sign over Los Angeles to uh Diego Senior. He goes to escape. And as I'm watching, he doesn't go to the window. And I'm like, why isn't he going to the window? That's so weird. Do they just fuck up that scene? And then it cuts and everyone comes in and they go back and he's gone. And I'm like, wow, what a weird. It had been so long since I had seen it. I forgot about the secret passage. But they set up the fact that he's using the secret passage much earlier in the film. And it's just, again, a beautiful visual cue to keep that continuity going throughout the film. You're yeah. making me more excited about the film as we than talk about it, <laughs> which it, is but, always the best result of these episodes when we talk about something and I'm not keen on it. But by the end of the film, I'm like, oh, man, I need to watch it again now. Right. But, well, that's the thing is one of the reasons I like listening to your podcast and thank you for having me on again. But one of the reasons I like listening to it is you through conversation you pull out things that the other person noticed, but maybe they didn't think was important or didn't register the same way. Like you're saying, oh, wait, he, this is all foreshadowed with this. And this is done. Yeah. like, and, and like, there's the footprints and then there, you know, your boots are buddy. Like you ever, there is no wasted sequence in this film. There's That's nothing. True. It's, it's tight in a way that there's nothing there that isn't giving you information and isn't giving you something that will be referenced later. And, or it's done in such a way that like, Hey, just we're going to move the camera while the boat goes across because we're just showing a boat on the ocean. Cause he has to get from Spain to America. And we want to remind people, this is the early 1800s. This is how you would have, got here. So let's, what if we just move the boat on the waves, move this camera on the waves, gives you motion, gives you something to make it, make it not seem like just a wasted shot where you could have had a, you know, the dotted map that was being used so often when people, which will reference in one of your picks, um, (laughs) that travel by dotted map, like in Indiana Jones or whatever. Um, that none of that is done in this film. That there just isn't extra stuff. It's just very tight, controlled, um, beautifully made by a expert craftsman. They're th- like, it's funny because I when I'm, I'm thinking about that scene, the chapel sequence, right, that we mentioned before, mm-hmm. and it's lit like a noir. Like that whole yeah. sequence is done like it's a noir. But that wasn't. You know, that wasn't really happening yet. It was just starting to bubble right. up. 
So it's not like, oh, I'm referencing all these other films. I mean, you're a year out. Is it the, it's a year before Maltese Falcon, isn't it? Or is it a year after? It's uh, well, it's a year before the Bogart Maltese Falcon, right? But, right. Uh, the but, the earlier one was, I think, thirty six or something like that. But to your right, point, but that's, right? Noir hadn't really hit yet. Noir, every, every although we tend to think of it as like a forties thing, it's really a late forties fifties thing. So what I'm right. wondering is, and I and I admit to not being as knowledgeable about Mamoulian's filmography as other people, but I know that he made his bones in the theater. So I'm wondering how much of what he's taking is his influence from stage productions and uh, German surrealism and shadow and the way that that was a tenet for uh, a, a foundation for noir, you know, him coming from the stage had to have known about those techniques and those processes. I wonder how much of that traveled with him in his stage experience to come to here, to start doing stuff like that here. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and, and when you look at some, like looking back at some of his filmography, I mean, he did the definitive Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yep. 1931. So like, and he was an opera director. So an opera and dance and theater, like his background is very different. And he, and this film, in a way, I think one of the reasons it's a little bit timeless or more, t- or is that it doesn't feel like it's a 1940 film. No, it doesn't. It feels like a film like 10, 12 years later than it's time. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting. The one thing that I kind of took away watching this again is a year later, he did Blood and Sand uh, with Linda Darnell and Tyrone Power again in Technicolor. Uh, so right. that was immediately like, okay, now I want to see this work on a Technicolor scale and see what that's like and see what's what's gained, what's lost in the translation of color for him. Any kind of final thoughts where we jump on to recommendations, Eric? Yeah, I said there. I had a couple of quibbles about this yeah. big fight. One, those aren't the right swords for the era for eighteen twenties. <laughs> Which that's a super nerdy Damn thing. Damn your erudition! But those are twentieth century foils, which is fine. That's what Rathbone was comfortable with. That's what he learned, and all that. So it is what it is. But like the history nerd in me goes, those are the wrong swords. And two, and this is something that I'm just going to say in general about swashbucklers up until until the modern era, is that for the safety of the actors, they are not in range where they can hit each other for 90% of this fight. Yeah. They are in range where it looks great, but like they, you know, they're not in lunging distance. Like they couldn't like hit the blades and come off and, and hit the other person. They're just a little bit too far away, but they're still, it still looks so good. You don't care. But if you start thinking about it, you're like, they can't hit anybody with that swing. Why would you bother to block it? <laughs> you know how they get away with that though? Like one of the things I loved about this sword fight was because I agree. And that is definitely something that is, is somewhat, noticeable like they are really far apart when they're fighting but they do these quick moments of impact that make you feel the danger even though there's really no danger there i think the biggest example in that sequence is when tyrone power lunges and goes through the bookcase and you hear the shattering of the glass right again there's no real danger there but it 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 provides that spark of Oh, they mean business. He just put his sword through a bookcase and shattered glass. So I think that kind of lends itself toward 
that feeling of threat, even though in reality, there's no threat there. And they have another neat trick that they use really well in this film. Yes, the that opening 30 seconds is a, a side shot of the two of them. They're never in range, but it's so fast and so quick and so beautifully done, you don't care. But what they quickly do after that is they do a lot of shots where you are like the camera is directly behind the shoulder mm. of one of the others. And you cannot tell the distance when you are at that angle. So when they're fighting and then there's a lunge, it looks like the other person has to get out of the way and they do it with both actors. So they let Rathbone, you know, defend or, you know, attack, but where you're seeing his face, then they'll switch to power. But if you watch that again, that's one of the, probably the biggest developments that they don't do in Robin Hood. Robin Hood almost never is shot that close. Yeah. In those fight scenes, they're only close when they do the theatrical, nobody does in real life, the cross swords, which they do in this movie where, where he bit. looks and he sees the cut. Like they just do that. Like our blades are crossed and we're face to face. Like you would, cause at any point, one of you could just slide, flip your wrist and cut the other guy. Like you wouldn't do that, but it looks cool. It lets you have the stare down moment, that reset. And in this case, it was that to let Tyrone Power come to his full power um, and become Don Diego Vega, <laughs> which is a far better version of Spanish than is in anybody that is not Spanish speaks in this film. <laughs> there are Hispanic actors and they speak Spanish. That's fine. Yeah. That, you know, and if you want to pick another quibble with this film before we leave, they use darker skinned Hispanics in this movie the same way that uh, black actors and actresses were used at this time. They are the servants, the help, yep. the whatever. It's about the era. It was, it's probably very historically accurate as well. It just seems a little weird now. So. Yeah, it's 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 hard to get away from that. Like, it is very much of the era, so I acknowledge it and just kind of like, okay, let's now right. move on. Um, I'm, I'm, it is not Abra the Abraham sequence of Holiday Inn. Correct. That's all you need to know. <laughs> exactly. That's that's my bar of completely unacceptable. <laughs> and anything that doesn't quite reach that bar is like, ah, it's just it's from the time. And I think on that note, <laughs> let's wrap it up and move to recommendations. Abraham. <laughs> okay. Recommendation time. Eric, as the guest, you have the honors of going first. So what do you want to talk about? Well, I thought for a while about what I could talk about. And I was like, I'll recommend something I've watched relatively recently. And then I have spent like the last two months watching every adaptation of Robin Hood that I could find. And I have to say, um, I like one, which is the one we talked about. <laughs> the other seven that I watched range from, this is acceptable to, oh no, oh no. So I'm not going to recommend any of the Robin Hoods. Okay. Even if you don't recommend them, give me the acceptable one. Um... It's the hammer one, uh, sort of Sherwood Forest. Oh, okay. The one that I just picked up. I have to go see yeah, that now. It's not good, 
but it's enthusiastic. If I'm going to pick an adaptation, the uh, TV show that was on uh, the British TV show from the 80s. Oh, I'm not familiar um, with They one. did a long running. It's just like Robin of Sherwood or something. I don't remember what it's called. It might just be called Robin Hood. Super low budget, like the worst episode of Doctor Who budget. Mm. But again, they're trying really hard and they make it kind of, you kind of can get into it. Like you, you, you just kind of like, it's like watching like the best community theater. You're pulling for them. You want them to make this work. And when they do, sometimes you're just like, yeah, yeah. Good for you. Good the for kids you. did good. Right. But I'm not recommending either of those. Okay. Because the other thing that I've been obsessed with over the last couple of months is... I don't know. I just went on this kick of reading stuff about the hollow earth because it's like even sillier than the flat earth. I'm going to pick two adaptations of two classic inner earth books. First one is the 1959 James Mason vehicle of Jules Verne's journey to the center of the earth. Okay. It's a movie I loved as a kid. And I love it as an adult. It doesn't matter how silly it is. It doesn't matter how cheesy it gets. It's just fun. And I realized one of the things we don't do really well anymore that we did a lot as ki- when we were kids is make family movies that everybody can enjoy on different levels. Like we kind of go, oh, well, that's what Pixar does now. But we used to make movies like Journey to the Center of the Earth or Dr. Doolittle or whatever that you could watch with your kids and you didn't go, oh, this is terrible. And as kids, you were like, wow, this is fun. There's cool stuff going on. Chitty, chitty, bang, bang. There's a flying car, right? Like who cares? Once there's a flying car, every kid is in. Yeah. Like they don't care about anything else. This movie is too long. Um, I would say that all of the lead actors are think they're stars of a different film. The effects are terrible. And yet it all comes together to just be charming. And James, it is the role is my favorite James Mason performance. It's just the oh, role that he was just, he just chews it up, has a blast. And it's, it's like, I love this film. It's not a great film. It's still the best adaptation. The other one that I watched is At the Earth's Core, which is the first Pellucidar book, Edgar Rice Burroughs one. But all you need to know is that it's Doug McClure and Peter Cushing. Listeners of the podcast know you have us at Cushing. Yes. Um, and he's kind of bumbling and sweet and silly. It's from 1976. It's not good, but it's utterly charming. The sets are hilarious because there's just like big fake giant mushrooms and everything's like pink and blue and yellow. They, they made like weird beast suits for people, which had like little smaller stunt guys that were like crouched in them running around in suits. Like it's, it's a mess, but it is so charmingly committed in the same way that like I talked about that British Robin Hood, this it's very British. It's very low. Like 
Uh, it feels like a low budget movie. It's not Hammer because I think Hammer's done by then. It's uh, Amicus Productions. Yeah. It's Technicolor. I love these films. I love the ideas of these films. I love the willingness to just go all in. Like, and because they're going all in on physical productions, this isn't CGI. They can't fix the stuff that doesn't work. They just have to go with it. And when you see, like in Journey the Earth's core or Journey the Center of the Earth, when you see that it's like they just glued a fin on the back of a iguana to make a <laughs> dimatron. Like, and you can see, like, and it's super funny, like they're the one that they interact with the most. They did the best job with the fin. One of the other ones, like it's immediately fallen over, and they just are like, well. We're not using him as a main one. He'll be in the back. But you can see like where they've glued it on to this poor iguana and then made the iguana jump around and do stuff that they then superimpose on. They made do with what they had. They did the best they could with what they had to work with. There's something so charming about that. And I wish... I think CGI, because you can change stuff and, and rearrange things and make a different Sonic, you, you can't, you don't have to live with the commitment to the bad thing, the bad idea or the, the, you know, beast makeup and, and electronic thing that doesn't work. So you've got to stuff a guy in it and hope that nobody notices that it's like a guy in an ape suit kind of yeah. thing. Um, there's something glorious about that. Make it work. There's that. Yeah. It's that, it's that low budget kind of, you can see the seams charm type of thing that I think was huge with hammer and amicus. Make me believe it. (laughs) I don't care that it's not real and it looks crappy. Make me believe that this, everybody's committed to it. If you commit to it, I will watch it. Sell the story. Yeah. Sell it. Sell me on it. And these movies sold me on it. That's so. awesome. But we're going to talk about a good movie now, right? I think so. I think we're going to talk about two good movies. Um, and it's something <laughs> okay. that I, I know, know one of them, but let's start with the other one. Yeah. So um, something near and dear, I know to your heart that both of us have been getting into. We both have really nice TVs and we both have 4K Blu-ray players. So I know we've both been getting very much into the 4K game. Um, and one of the things that I know interests both of us is not so much new 4K releases, because when you're filming digitally, it's really easy to have a 4K print based off of a digital negative that looks astounding. Um, where the, where the format really makes its bones is in older films. So I know both of us, whether it's through Criterion or others, have been collecting 4K films, um, from the older errors and really seeing the magic happen there. So I'm going to talk about two films that I recently purchased in 4K and got a blast out of both of which I have seen theatrically. So it's really interesting to now compare this 4k experience to the theatrical experience. And the first one I saw all the way back in 1995. And that is the recent criterion release for Carl Franklin's devil in a blue dress starring Denzel Washington, Tom Sizemore, Jennifer Beals, and holy shit, Don Cheadle. Uh, for those of you who have seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is based off of um, the first book in the Easy Rollins series of mystery books by Walter Mosley. Uh, and that's where I first knew of the, the character. I was, I've always been a big fan of mystery novels and mystery series, and I had read Devil in a Blue Dress 
before seeing the movie, the movie came out and it was literally like, it's, it's very rare that they capture the spirit of a novel so perfectly. Carl Franklin, I wish he had done more movies because the, the, the few movies he did are phenomenal. But here is like one false move, which came before this is lightning in a bottle. You have Walter Mosley producing, um, Carl Franklin adapting his novel and directing Denzel Washington starring as Ezekiel Easy Rollins, um, a kind of down on his luck, um, GI vet loses his job at the, um, aerospace, uh, firm where he's works and is given an offer by this white guy who comes up to him and says, Hey, um, looking for this white woman. And it draws easy into a mystery where he is forced to kind of become a detective. Um, he's not a detective. And that's one of the brilliant things about this movie. Um, it is gorgeous. Uh, I remember seeing this in the theater and just loving it. And this is what 4k is for. 4k is for showing you a film in the best presentation that it could possibly be where you still see the film grain, but you see every detail. Um, I make no bones about, and it's a running joke on this show that, uh, I am enamored by male actors. Uh, it is a self-esteem thing. It is a, it is a hair thing. It could be a number of things, but man, <laughs> let me tell you, no one wears a tank top and suspenders like Denzel Washington does. And you see every fiber of that tank top. You see every thread of his slacks and his suspenders. Uh, 4K just brings out everything. Carl Franklin is such a master at framing and shooting and working with performance, uh, performers to get the best performances out of their, out of the, the story. This is a master class in neo noir, but taking the tropes of a noir and putting it in a scenario where Race is now a central issue. Um, so how do you become a typical noir protagonist? How do you become, like we were talking about earlier with the Maltese Falcon, how do you become um, Philip Marlowe? How do you become Sam Spade? How do you get to be that noir protagonist with the quippy one-liners and an answer for everything? But you're a black guy. And you're now arrested by the white police. How do you become that protagonist when anything that you say that takes a slightly offensive tone will get you beaten to within an inch of your life? And that's one of the things that I love about Devil in the Blue Dress. It tries to be a noir, but is always cognizant of the culture of the time. Um, and how he, how Denzel Washington has to navigate it. I think it's one of his best performances. Um, but. What is really great about this film is this is where Don Cheadle became Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle plays Mouse. He plays um, Easy's friend from, uh, I think it's Houston. They had gotten into some trouble. And now um, Easy is on his own. I, th I think he's in L.A. Um, and he needs help to get himself out of this crazy mess. So he calls Mouse in. And the second Don Cheadle is on screen... You would think it would be hard to take your eyes off of Denzel Washington, but when Don Cheadle is on the screen, he is explosive. He is a powder keg ready to blow at any minute. He is not only the comic relief, he is also the 
intensity exploder of any scene. Um, and the fact that so early in his career, he goes toe to toe with Denzel, who, if nothing, I, I mean, is so generous an actor that he allows Cheadle the room to take all of the oxygen and use it for his performance. It's staggering. It not only holds up just as well, it probably holds up better than when I had seen it originally. And if you have not seen it and you are a noir fan, you owe it to yourself to check out this film as soon as possible. I haven't seen it since it came out. And so I need to rectify that. But it was it was it was the movie that made everybody realize Don Cheadle was someone that couldn't be ignored. Yeah. Uh yeah, it, it, it's that, like, who is that guy? Oh, it's Don Cheadle. Okay, we're good. Yeah, and Denzel, it is, I think it's one of his best performances because it it's a character that shows his full range. And I think oftentimes Denzel is sort of like gets to play kind of two-dimensional characters. He doesn't get to really be fully realized. And I think this movie, he gets easy Rollins. He knows who that is. It lets him be vulnerable. It, it It is yeah. not the Denzel Washington that is tough as nails, has every answer, and can do no wrong. It is a Denzel Washington who is terrified of white people, who is terrified of the police, who knows that getting involved with a white woman is going to cause problems, knows that he's in a position where all he cares about is that he's a landowner, he owns his house, he's behind on his mortgage, and he's so desperate for that piece of that piece of the American dream that he has fought so hard for as a vet, knowing that it can be taken away from him at any moment, he plays all of those things beautifully in this film. But also at the same time, has to play the noir protagonist and play it right. in a way that is a touchstone to everything that's come before in the 40s and the 50s. Now, it, it's, a, it's a stunning film, and I look forward to seeing it again. Oh, and the 4K, Eric, is... Like I said, it's it's films like this and films like what we're about to talk about that make 4K to me the revelation it is. Like I have 4K for newer films. Like I I, I know you were not a fan. I'm I'm a big fan of the new Dune. I have the 4K. It just looks like a modern movie. It doesn't give me the feeling of, oh my god, I'm seeing this thing for the first time larger than life. It doesn't give me the feeling that our next film does, which is right. I talked earlier about um, we're going to talk about my favorite film of all time, which just a week ago got its 4k release from Warner brothers. And that is 1942's Casablanca, which I won't go into detail on because to go into detail on it will cause me to blubber and cry like a baby uh, for a lot of reasons. It is the most personal film uh, of my life. It's the best film I've ever seen in my life. And seeing it now, we'll just very quickly, Rick Blaine, Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart, My Michael Curtiz, How Wallace Producing, Ingrid Bourbon, Claude Rains, Conrad Veet. Uh, this is the start of a beautiful friendship. Play it, Sam. You know the song I want to hear. As time goes by, I mean, it is the movie of a hundred thousand quotes of some of the greatest noir. It's not a noir, but it has some of the greatest performances that would kind of elevate what people would do in noir, you know, five to six years later. Um, 
it, it is endlessly quotable. It has some of the most stunning musical moments of all time. I, I am, I am completely subjective when it comes to the film. I have no distance when it comes to it. So I, I won't talk about why it's a great film. What I will talk about is this is what 4K does. This is why 4K to me is important as a format, not just for the preservation of films, especially as we get to a point where everything is slowly becoming streaming. And what we lose in a streaming world is the fact that because streaming is so hard to navigate, movies can fall off the radar and you'll never know that they disappear. So physical formats and physical formats that preserve as clearly as possible the original intent of a film to me is becoming more and more important, especially as I look to ensure that I have kind of lifetime legacy copies of the favorite moments of my life. My life is, is measured by films. I've never made, um, I've never made any ambiguous kind of notion around that. There are, it's music and books and film. I, I am obsessed with that, which I consume. It's what defines us. Um, and this is the movie that defines me more than anything else. And watching the 4k edition of this, and you and I have talked, I own so many copies of Casablanca through the years. It's somewhat ridiculous. This is the first time I've watched Casablanca and it made me feel like I was watching it for the first time. It made me feel like that little kid sitting with my dad when I was like 10 or 12 years old. So this would be like 82, 83. Um, and seeing the thing that made my dad the person that he was at the time, seeing the thing that not only became kind of my life, but became my dad's life and, and turned him into the person that he was back then. Watching this gave me that. Uh, and I don't know that a format can really, you know, if a format can do any more than that, I, I wouldn't know how to describe it. Uh, it is by far the best version of the film that I've ever seen. It holds up incredibly well. There's a reason why it's consistently, if not marked as the best film of all time, which I completely understand, it's marked as people's favorite film of all time. And I'll never make the argument that this is the best film ever made. It's not. But it is by far my favorite film ever made. I hear all that and I agree. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Like, I have seen this in the theater several times. I have owned it several different formats. I have seen this at least 50 times. I've seen this more than I've seen Robin Hood. Same. But, you know, not by a ton, but but more. And, you know, I have seen a pristine fresh 35 millimeter print of this, the 4K Blu-ray is better. And I think you said something, you know, off mic earlier, the way you phrased it was perfect. It now looks like how we remember it looking in our head, like in yeah. our heads, when we think about the film, it now has that. The texture, the lighting detail, like the detail in the shadows, the depth of field, the um, liveliness of the bazaar. Like, it doesn't feel like a set anymore. Like, it's really weird. It feels like a real place when, they, when it is out in the street, like that opening sequence oh. when they're rounding up the usual suspects. That's not even a, a thing that's showing off the showcase of what the light and shadow of 4K. 
it just shows off the detail beautifully, the depth of field beautifully. But then when you get to like Bogart sitting at the bar and the only thing lit is his eyes and in the back window is the flashing of the lights of the streets of Casablanca, you see every wrinkle, every pore of on that man's face. You see the, but what you see in his eyes is the ravaging of his heart. That is what this movie in this version does. It's, it's astounding. Like maybe the best 4k I've seen. Yeah. Part of the problem with 4k sometimes with certain films is because it is so clear, it shows you kind of the seams and the effects. Right. Um, I'll be the first to say that Casablanca, you can see its effects clear as day. I don't need 4K to show me that the plane is a toy model, right? That the lights behind right. the bar are just pinpricks in a, in a mat board. I don't need any of that. But the magic of this transfer, the magic of this restoration is that it shows all of that and it, but it doesn't show it. It doesn't show the seams. It shows the intent. Uh, it, yeah. it, it, it shows the vision of what this film could be. Uh, and it's, <laughs> I won't go into more because I can already feel my, my, uh, right. my body choking up. But if you want a master class in character, if you want a master class in performance, I mean, Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, Paul Heinrich, Claude Rains, Conrad Veet, Sidney Greenstreet, Peter Lore, help me, Rick, help me, hide me, Rick. Uh, the, there's not a moment of this that isn't indelibly printed on every part of my psyche. Uh, right. So if you want a masterclass in what 4K can do, because you're not convinced, check out something like this. Um, check out what Criterion is doing with their films of the 40s. Um, check out Double Indemnity. Check out Citizen Kane. Check out some of these recent transfers that they've been hitting. The fact that the Criterion Collection is not just focusing on their biggest films. We were talking earlier about, man, the second that they released a 4K of Seven Samurai, I'm there. The fact that they haven't done that, but they did Devil in a Blue Dress, that is, that is commitment. That is commitment to preservation. That is commitment to what I look for in film. So that's my recommendation. Go and hit it. But yeah, check this out. If you get a chance, it is worth it. And, uh, I think there's no better way to end this than to remind you we have two movies. The first movie we talked about, the last one we talked about, Claude Rains. Oh, Claude Rains. That's all. Claude Rains. If nothing else, if nothing else, let's end this cinema duel with Claude Rains. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Uh, great to have you back. Like I said, I think this will be the first um, of a series that, you know, it won't be next month, but we will be peppering throughout uh, the duration of cinema duel. We'll be coming back and talking more about swashbucklers and all its many permutations. Uh, thank you so much for joining. Uh, thank you for having me. It was a joy as always. And, um, yeah, I, can't. I hope I'm back before another three years go by. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Stay safe, be well, and we'll see you next time.